Welcome to the Clear Choices Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Eigner, and it is my unique privilege to bring you intriguing conversations with people who have made the bold choices necessary to elevate their lives and create a positive impact on the world. By hearing their stories, I hope you walk away more motivated and more inspired to do the same in your life. Because we all have choices to make. My goal is to help inspire you to make more conscious and powerful choices, clear choices. Now let's get started. Welcome everybody, welcome to Clear Choices. This is episode number three and I'm so excited to have my guest here, Stephen Beard. Let me tell you a little bit about him. He was born in Toronto, Canada, but has lived in the Bay Area since 2000. He holds two, not one, but two degrees, one in business administration, and then a second one that I also hold, and that is a degree in journalism. He is also an active realtor in the Oakland area. He's a member of the Contra Costa County Development Disabilities Planning and Advisory Council. He's also a member of the board of directors of the East Bay Innovations and a member of the development committee. In the last three years, he's sold over 50 real estate units, total value of $27 million. And he's built his entire real estate career on a foundation of professionalism and dependability and a commitment to being reliable to his clients. His clientele is interesting. It consists of all types of buyers and sellers, but he does specialize in providing real estate services for people with disabilities. Stephen himself has cerebral palsy, which affects his mobility. And so therefore he has firsthand experience with dealing with some of those limitations and challenges for the, for the clients that he serves. He's also committed to giving back in a big way, not only to the disabled community, but to the community at large. And a percentage of each of his closed transactions goes back to local organizations to serve uh, various communities. But ultimately, the reason I wanted Stephen on today's podcast is he is truly a positive and proactive and inspiring individual. And I'm so glad to welcome him to our show. Welcome, Stephen. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for being here. So uh, as you know, I'm someone who kind of likes to get right to the point. And one of the things that initially inspired me to ask you to be part of uh, this show was the fact that you have cerebral palsy. And one of the things that you pointed out to me, which was really valuable and I so appreciate it, was you shared with me a, a YouTube video of a TED Talk given by a woman named Stella Young. Tell the listeners a little bit about that. So Stella Young uh, was a disability uh, advocate in Australia. Unfortunately, she's passed on, but she did this TED Talk that I saw several years ago where she talked about the objectification of people with disabilities for the purpose of inspiring other people. And she called that disability porn. <laughs> and she felt quite offended by it. This whole idea that we should hold up people with disabilities to inspire other people, you know, because sort of like that's what they're good for kind of thing. And, mm -hmm. and it's been very controversial in the disability community, but I've always felt kind of impacted by it. And so I raised it with you when you first invited me on your show, because I want to talk about, I, I appreciate you inviting me on your show because it gives me the opportunity to talk about the choices I've made. And I was wondering whether 
those choices would be perceived through the lens of, you know, this poor fellow who walks with a limp. Uh, and isn't he, isn't he amazing because he does this as opposed to what I want, which is to, you know, share with people my passion for life and, and my enthusiasm and, and my optimism and how that helps me to make decisions that have helped me to have the success that I, that you so graciously pointed out earlier. So Yeah. Well, and again, I, it was very powerful for me to not only watch that video, but then to hear you talk about it, uh, not just, just now, but as we prepared for doing this particular show, because, you know, I, I have to be honest and transparent, you know, yes, that was part of the reason that I was drawn to you as a subject for our show, because I do find your positive attitude and all the contributions that you make to the real estate community and the world at large and your community in general, uh, I, I find it all the more inspirational because of the physical challenge you have to overcome. So I, I'd be lying if I said that didn't draw me to you. But then what makes you even more inspirational to me is the fact that you don't even want that to be focused on. You're like, no, that's not even it. I just want to be, I just want to focus on what I bring to the world as a human, regardless of how I walk or how, what my mobility looks like. So that's just awesome. I love that. So I'm going to start off with a question. What has been something difficult in your life that you've had to overcome? So I lost my father when I was 17, um, and it was the early 80s. And back then, in the, where I grew up anyway, you didn't deal with grief. You, you shoved it underneath the table, and you went on with your life, and you took this stoic attitude about it. I grew up in a – my father had, was British, and so there was this whole British stoicism layered on top of that as well that sort of pervaded the way our family just dealt with grief back then. Uh It's it's such a different way than we deal with grief nowadays. And it took me and my sisters many, many years to, well, I shouldn't speak for my sisters. (laughs) It took me um, many years to sort of come to grips with uh, how that impacted my life and to develop good relationships because losing your father when you're 17, it's, there were a lot of things I needed to learn that I had to learn as a young adult without certain influences that I think would have helped me. Let me ask you a question about that. So you're 17, your father, you know, passes, you're maybe not fully equipped to deal with the self-care you need to provide yourself to get through that. When would you say, how long did it take when you would say that you had maybe dealt with it in a healthy way? Uh, my late thirties. Okay. Now, when we talk about it, let me be very clear. These challenges I had were primarily emotional and and coping mechanism related stuff. And I got to my late 30s and I was wondering why was I unhappy? Why wasn't my life the way I envisioned it when I was in my early 20s and as a late teenager? And that's where it drew back to, you know, having to deal with losing my father and having to deal with all the issues, the emotional issues. So, it wasn't a physical matter. It was a matter of emotion and- uh, No, yeah, I, to- I, totally under- I totally understand that. So what did you do? Like when you, fi- you said it wasn't until your 30s that you started feeling like that you'd coped with it in a healthy way. What did you do that allowed you to get to a place where you had dealt with it in a way that felt healthy? Well, I spoke with a therapist. Okay. Um, and tried to get to the root of my, unha- my, it wasn't so much that I was unhappy. I've always been a very happy person. Um, it was more of a sense of why don't I have in my life what I wanted? Why don't I have 
uh, relate. Why am I having trouble in relationships? Why am I having trouble forming long-term romantic relationships? Why am I just not not feeling content with where I'm at uh, in that regard? And and that's what's driving it. And then it led to me doing therapy and the th- cognitive behavioral therapy primarily, and dealing with it. And a lot of stuff came up. One of the things, interestingly, that came up was my lack of recognition that I am a person with a disability. Uh, wait, so, what, so wait, how, I'm sorry to interrupt, but how old were you when you did start feeling the symptoms of the disability? Okay, so I've always walked with a gait, with a significant pronounced gait, and that started from when I was four years old. I had my leg doctor that I would go to see. But my parents raised me to be, to ignore it. My parents raised me to ignore it. I was mainstreamed. That's the way they say nowadays. I was mainstreamed. There was never, apart from having my leg doctor, I just went along and lived my life. When I was 13 years old, I wore braces for about six, eight months to help me stop dragging my feet. But that was the extent of it. So that British stoicism existed not only around feelings, but even like, hey, let's, let's just move on and you know, not necessarily uh, have, I don't know, how would you describe how they dealt with the gate? They did not want me to think I couldn't do anything I wanted to do. Their attitude was, we are not going to let him feel sorry for himself. We are not going to let him think that he can't do anything he wants. I have this very fond recollection of my mother telling me a story Mm -hmm. of me being eight years old and being out on, I grew up in Toronto, so hockey, right? Out on the street playing road hockey with a buddy of mine in our driveway, uh, you know, asphalt paved driveway. And my mom tells me the story that she and my dad were watching me playing. I was playing goalie and he was shooting and, and I was falling a lot not to stop the puck or the ball. It would have been a, it would have been a tennis ball, but not to stop that, but to, because I was just not good on my feet. I didn't have good balance and I was falling a lot and she wanted to rush out and help me and hug me. And my dad said, no, he's got to learn to get up for himself. So that sort of thing is just a very anecdotal way of looking at it. And so it wasn't until in my late thirties when I was wondering why have I not found love in my life? What's wrong with me? And I started to explore these issues. And that was one of the things that came up. I'd ignored the fact that, yeah, there is something about me that is unique, and that is this disabling physical condition. And until I acknowledged it and got, got rid of the attempt to sort of pretend it wasn't there, I wasn't able to achieve what I wanted. And of course, my life has just bloomed in my 40s and 50s. I found love and other things happened. So that, there's a lot to unravel on that. <laughs> so that's, that's great. So Tell me what you see as the lesson that you got from the way your parents chose to handle it, which I can really appreciate. They're like, hey, we're not going to let him feel sorry for himself. We're going to make him figure this out and cope with it. So what, how, how would you say that that choice of theirs to raise you that way, which I'm sure not all parents would make that choice, how now has that translated into who you are? Well, I'm incredibly grateful to them because I don't have any kind of victim mentality at all which one might get if they're constantly coddled and felt sorry for. I'm incredibly self-reliant. I have been my whole life. I've lived most of my life as a bachelor. Um, So I think that's the main thing I would say about that. But the downside is I was kind of hiding. I was kind of hiding from myself and my true nature in a way that inhibited my ability to, to love I appreciate you being so honest and vulnerable. And I want to draw a little bit of a parallel on, um, you know, previous episodes, I've interviewed my parents who, uh, as you may know, are Holocaust survivors and their way of coping 
with being a survivor for a large part of my upbringing is a little parallel to what you're saying is the way your parents handled your disability. And that is to say that my parents really didn't talk about having been survivors. They didn't want to dwell in it. There was no victimhood. And in fact, I didn't know about it until I was 15 years old or so, the fact that they were Holocaust survivors. And so I, I really, in myself, have witnessed the benefits of that sort of uh, suppression, for lack of a better word, of kind of suppressing those feelings about that, like that provided them with a lot of positive ways of moving forward. But there was also some downsides to that suppression. Can you, can you address that? Like what were the challenges now in hindsight about having kind of suppress some of these things? Through the therapy that I did, I came to understand that I had a lot of shame and a lot of body shame issues around my ability to be a good romantic partner, a good sexual partner. Mm -hmm. Until I dealt with that, it impacted my ability to develop serious relationships with women. I, totally I believe that that was manifested by the way I was raised. And what I was trying to say is that is not to cast aspersion on the way I was raised. I'm just saying that's what happened. Sure. There's and you were asking me what, what changed? What did I do to make the change in my life in my late 30s that I needed to make? And that was what I learned during the therapy that I did. Why had I not seen the kind of romantic relationships in my life that I'd hoped to see by that point. Right? I really appreciate you sharing that. And there's a couple of questions I want to ask. The first one is how hard was it for you and what was your process to decide to even go to therapy? Cause I know that that was probably counter to everything you've just got done talking about in terms of how you were raised. So was that hard for you or challenging to just go, Hey, I need some help. You know, it was, 17 or 18 years ago so it's hard to remember exactly what whether I don't remember it being hard I remember making a decision that I needed to talk to somebody so this is a real general question that I'm going to ask right now and I'm asking it in a general sense because I want to hear where you decide to go with it but with all this and some of the other things I know about you that you will I'm sure share in a bit did you ever feel like quitting no no, 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 no. I have never had suicidal thoughts. I have never actually ever been clinically depressed. I get down once in a while. When I get down, I have this innate feeling and people listening to this might be, well, I don't want to presume what people are going to think. <laughs> I am blessed or fortunate or whatever you want to say that when I get down, I have this hidden innate feeling that I know I'm going to feel better in the, in the future. So I just have this, I don't know whether it's uh, genetic, you know, whether it's brain chemistry or what it is, but I'm just generally a positive, happy-go-lucky person. And so I never felt, I've never felt, even to this day, even as my disabling, as my mobility has deteriorated since that time, I've never felt that I wasn't going to be able to do what I want to do or I mean, everyone has moments, oh, my back really hurts today, you know, or why can't I, why can't I bend down to the floor to pick up the pen that fell down, you know. Everyone has moments where they feel a little frustrated in the moment, but no, I've never ever felt that I couldn't do anything I wanted in my life, and I still feel I can do anything I want in my life. I climbed Diamond Head in Hawaii, and I did that with a guide because I was a little concerned about the lack of railings at places, and it was a blast. I have amazing memories of that and amazing pictures. That was only a year and a half ago. Two years ago, actually. Two 
That's amazing. That's amazing. So you talked about just now, you always know that you're going to come out of it when you're feeling down, that you know you're going to come out of it. Do you have a go-to thing that you do? Like for me, if I'm feeling down, I'm always helped by getting a workout in. You know, I go for a hike, I go to the gym, I sweat, I surf, I do something physical. And that is my kind of guaranteed thing that at least not take me backwards. It'll at least keep me level or go up at worst, uh, or sometimes completely snap me out of it. Is there something you go to? What's your habit, if you will? So the closest thing I have is when I know that I'm feeling blue, I want to get out of my normal milieu, which means I don't want to keep work. I want to try to not be doing my work. I don't want to be doing my normal thing. So escapism for me. So I might put on a TV show or a Netflix show or something or go, go for a walk or go to the movies or just something that's escapist to just, just, just switch it up a bit. Yeah. Something that makes me, takes me out of my brain, takes me out of myself, takes me out of my headspace. So I'm not focused on how I'm feeling, but just doing something different for a while. So one of the things I always like to talk about when I'm, you know, speaking publicly or whatever is that every scenario, every person, every strength or weakness that we have as people, there's what I, what I like to say, the front of the hand and the back of the hand. You know, the front of the hand is like, oh, wow, I'm assertive. And that's really good because being assertive helps me achieve X, Y, Z. The back of the hand of being assertive is, you know, maybe I, I'm too aggressive for some people or, you know, there's something, there's some counterbalance to being aggressive. There's a good thing and a bad thing. So, you know, some people might hear, oh, wow, a person is challenged by whatever, having lost a loved one or like having lost your father or having a disability or whatever. What's the most positive thing that you have learned? What's enriched your life about having a disability? Interesting question. Gratitude. I go to gratitude and fierce anti-victimization modality. Mm -hmm. We have a brief span of time on this planet, Rob, and we're going to get the bodies we get. We're going to get what we get and we can choose in each and every moment. You talk about clear choices. We choose in each and every moment how we want to respond. I've known people who tell me I can't help it if I get upset with the driver in traffic that cuts me off. I can't help it if I get upset that you know, the boss yelled at me. And what do you say to that? I reject it. I reject it outright. I believe that in every moment of every day, we make a choice. Sometimes we make it sleepwalking and we're not paying attention to the choice, but we make a choice about how we're going to respond to everything in every single moment of our lives. Yeah, I'm a hundred percent like, so that is so in alignment with my purpose of doing this podcast to begin with. So I, I can't tell you how much I, I love hearing what you said. And I believe I shared with you as we were doing our show prep that, you know, I did a talk once at a major university about a year ago and there was probably 150 students in the room. And I was giving this talk about clear choices and it was predominantly very well received, but there was one woman and I'm very curious about your response to your reaction to her reaction. There was this one woman who raised her hand after I got done giving an impassioned speech, sort of along the lines of what you just shared about we all have a choice in our day-to-day alignment with gratitude or not. And she raised her hand and she says, you know, I had a horrible car accident a year ago and my back is in extreme pain 
And I don't have a choice about whether I'm miserable or not. I'm miserable because I'm in so much pain. And I said, in all caring and love towards her, it wasn't an attack. I just said, well, with all due respect, I beg to disagree. I'm sorry that you're in pain and I'm sorry you're going through what you're going through. But I believe you do have a choice. I do believe you have a choice to be grateful for the medical attention you're receiving or the people that care about you or the fact that you get to be at a great university like this or the moments when you're not in pain. You can choose to focus on those things or you can choose to live in 100% of the time the pain and the discomfort you're in, which I'm sure is unpleasant. But there's other aspects to your life that I think the way you're looking at it seem to ignore. So I'd be curious what your response is to my response to this woman. Well, I completely agree with you. However, I would temper it. We can only take responsibility for how we feel about ourselves and for what we do and how we respond. Sure. Other people are going to make their own choices. I feel sadness a little bit for this person. Sure. That they're not able to, they're not able to, Maybe it's brain chemistry. It may be, it may not be anything that they have any ability to change, but I feel very grateful that I can take a situation and choose how to respond to it. I can take the inputs in and I'm awake enough to make a conscious decision about, do I go to the left? Do I go to the right? Do I get happy? Do I get sad? Not everybody is, is there. And in this case that you're telling me, it makes me sad because this person is really suffering. Yeah, no, I agree. I felt total empathy for this person. And my goal was to hopefully help her see that she has a choice. Uh, And she might not have seen it that day and she might not see it still a year plus later. But I'm hoping at some point, maybe she sees that she does have a choice in the matter. So let me ask you this. Do you have any go-to people in your life that when you have a difficult decision, whether it's a business decision, a relationship decision, a financial decision, do you have people that you reliably go to when you need input and you're yes. having a challenge making a choice? Absolutely. Talk to I me about that. I'm so grateful to have friends that I've had for years from high school and university and later in life that, that lift me up when I need to be lifted up. So if I may share with you an anecdote. Sure. I was married and my wife who passed away in 2012 was dealing with a lot of health issues. And from 2009 until she died in 2012, I was doing less and less real estate and more and more full-time care providing. And it was during that time that I leaned on my friends and they supported me in a variety of ways for which I am so grateful. Helped me through a very, very difficult time. That's the second difficult thing in my life. You're asking about difficult challenges. That's the second one. It was, it was the long, long sickness and ultimate passing of my wife. It was a really tough time. And I just feel nothing but gratitude for the people around me uh, who, who helped me through it. Well, what, what's so, I think, enlightening, I, I hope is an enlightening for the listeners is that you, know, you talk about your father, the loss of your father. You talk about the loss of your wife. And I think also with your disability and the through line is gratitude. And I don't think that's where most people would naturally think listening to you today would think maybe where you would go or where they might go. I mean, I know myself when I think of, I imagine, oh, how would I respond if I were you, Stephen? I'm not sure if I would 
be able to find gratitude uh, in some of these things that you have found gratitude in. I, I hope I would, but I, well, I let's just be very clear for the listener. It wasn't like my wife died and oh, I'm grateful today. <laughs> it took it took me. I mean, it, it's the sort of thing I can talk about in retrospect of how of at that time I was lifted up and. I feel gr- incredible gratitude now about it. Of course. You know, uh, but at the time, there was a lot of grieving. But I believe that the grieving over my wife was a healthier grieving process than what helped happen when my father died, where everything got shut down. You know, I was not only had the benefit of my experience of the therapy I did and having experienced more life, but, you know, being older and a little wiser, hopefully, also helped. But yeah, I mean, I don't want to be the person who's going through life feeling sorry for myself every day or, oh, why did this happen to me? That's not me. It never has been. And so you just carry on. Even after my wife died, I didn't feel sorry for myself because I knew it was coming. I knew when I met her, uh, when I started dating her, she was a sick woman. She Mm -hmm. had already had serious illness before we started dating. And I said to myself, quite, I didn't say it quite in these, I don't want to sound trite, but it is better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. Sure. That was, that was sort of like my philosophy going into that relationship with her. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, it was a tragic, it was a sad ending to what was an amazing love affair. And I wouldn't trade my experience with my late wife for, for anything. I don't have any regret. I decided to get into that relationship. Right? And, that, and that's a perfect question. It's funny that you say you have no regret because it was literally the next question or <laughs> the line of questioning I wanted to ask. Where in your life do you have regrets? I'm so glad you asked that, Rob, because I have very strong feelings about this. <laughs> when I was going away to college, my mother said to me, uh, this was two years after my dad died. My mother said to me, Stephen, don't go away. Please stay and go to a local school. Um, I want you here to help me. And I said, okay, mom. And so I stayed and went to the local school. And I started getting together with my buddies, all of whom went out of town and went to these colleges. And they were having these amazing experiences. And they were fanning their horizons and growing up, turning from teenagers to adults. And I was stuck living at home, going to basically going to a, a day school version of high school that was more independent, right? But I was still not really uh, on my own and not really growing up. And after that happened, and I felt angry, I felt, I didn't feel angry at my mother, but I felt angry at my choice. And I had regret about it. And I said, gee, I should have done that. And then I said to myself, then the next thought that happened was, I am never going to not do anything again, because of somebody else, for someone else's benefit. Now that may sound selfish, but let me just finish, Rob. Because I said to myself, I'm always going to, I'm not going to have regret ever again. I have made some incredible choices. And the reason you know me is because of those choices. Those incredible choices to be the butterfly and go to Toronto to Vancouver and the incredible choice to go from Vancouver to California and the incredible choice to get into real estate, right? Sure. All of those have led to this conversation that we're having right now. Yeah. No regret. I went into every one of those decisions saying, I'm going to make a decision here and I'm not going to look back. You know, it reminds me, I, I don't know if you ever saw the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, yes, many times. But, but well, as you were talking about your mom asking you to stay back uh, and go to the commuter school, it made me think of the main character staying behind while his brother gets to go off to war and travel the world and all these things that he's jealous of. And then that choice or that, the result of that outcome is that he ends up having this wonderful life. 
despite kind of having that one regret. That right, but he had Clarence to help him. I have my own internal Clarence. <laughs> well, so that, and that's another, God, you're, you're setting me up for all my questions. Internal right. Clarence. So one of the things I like to ask all my guests is, how much of your decision-making, your choices, how much of it is rational and logical and strategic versus intuitive? I think 60% to 70% is, is rational. Is rational. Yeah. I, I tend to be an analyzer. Um, so if it's a big decision like moving to California or leaving Toronto to go to Vancouver or deciding to pursue real estate, there is a great deal of thought that goes into it and a great deal of analysis, both, you know, in, in every aspect of it. I look at the financial aspect of it. I look at the personal, emotional aspect of it. I look at the perhaps an intellectual perspective. I look at, try to look at it as many different ways and solicit the in, insights of as many people as I can. So talk to me a little bit more. Let's go into a little bit more detail. Like if, when you're making a big decision, I'm going to get in, I'm going to switch businesses. I'm going to switch where I live, countries in your case. Do you do a pro and con sheet? Are you consulting a lot of people? Are you doing a ton of, re like what's your process for making a big decision like that? So all of that. So I love spreadsheets and pro and con lists. I like looking at things from as many different angles. And that's why I like to bring in my, the people I know and love. And sometimes even people that are just more distant acquaintances who may have a unique perspective on subject. So for example, when I decided to pursue journalism, I interviewed a radio station producer as well as, uh, as, well as talking to friends. When I decided I wanted to be a real estate agent, I actually interviewed six brokerages before I ultimately uh, came to the brokerage, went to the brokerage I went to. I also, I love lists and I, I love looking at things analytically. So I like looking at, um, you know, if I do this, you know, what, is, what are the implications for that? So yeah, it's just a, like a fact-finding mission. It's almost like, I guess the closest thing to it would be like studying for a midterm or, or, or writing a research paper is a better analogy. If you're writing a research paper, then you're going to be doing, trying to you know, gather information, sort the information, and then analyze the information. Okay, so here's, a, here's, here's an interesting question. So you do all that research, which I think is how I would go about it too. I want to have information. And then let's say you have all this information that you've gathered, spoken to people, you've researched it, and it's pointing you towards decision A, but your gut is telling uh -huh. you decision B. How do you rectify that? I'd probably go with the gut, especially as I've gotten older. So there may have been a time where I wouldn't listen to my gut, but that always got me, gets me in trouble. So if I do that research and my gut is telling me to do something different, then I go, I don't do it. Interesting. But, but what is really important about this process, Rob, is I refuse to, I try, and I've gotten older, I'm better at it, to not make decisions from a place of fear. So I've made plenty of decisions, and I don't have regret about them, but I've certainly made plenty of decisions in my adult life that I did them because I was afraid of something else. Let me give you a simple example. I chose to sell a condo that I owned in Vancouver, British Columbia in 2000 and whatever year it was I moved here, 2000. When I moved down to the States, I sold a condo. And at the time, I went through this great analysis about how you know, how it would, how much it would cost and was it, was it worth it to keep it? And I wasn't in real estate at the time. I might've made a different decision, but um, I did sell the condo. And the main reason I sold the condo is because I didn't want to deal with the taxation issues of owning property in a foreign country. And I was worried about how I would manage that, which is a terrible reason. And of course, 
I sold the condo and, you know, then, then the Olympics were announced a few years later for Vancouver and the property were tripled in value over, over the 10 year period. And I, and I, I didn't have any rental income that I could have potentially had as rents rose and exceeded how much, because I would have been negative equity every month on the mortgage had I done it at that time. But anyway, it was all fear. It was all fear based. It was a, it was a poor decision because it was out of fear mm-hmm. uh, of not being comfortable with dealing with foreign money at this, a foreign ownership of an asset. I see which is, you know, it is what it is. And I, and I don't regret it, but it is a decision. I don't want to make decisions from fear. It was an education. Everything that doesn't happen the way we want it to could be thought of as a teacher of ours of how we're going to do it better the next time. So we all deal with fear. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and you just gave a, a very poignant example of it. So when fear comes up for you, which, you know, it, it has to, I think, from time to time, because you're human, how do you kind of chop your way through the tall brush of fear so you can see what's at the core of the decision you need to make? That's a really good question, Rob. I'm still working on that. I think the first step is recognizing that it is fear and not that I'm rationalizing. The reason, the but, the but in my thought process is actually fear and not something, something that would be a legitimate concern. I think it's perfectly okay for me to be cognizant of issues involved and potential risks and benefits of different choices. I want my ultimate decision not to be guided, oh, because I'm afraid of something. And sometimes it's really hard to recognize that. So the process, I think it just has to be talking with loved ones and asking them to help me through it. I don't know if I have a good answer for you. That's a really tough thing. So... You're a teacher as well, besides being a realtor and besides being an advocate for various disability organizations. And uh, I know you're in a relationship again, so that keeps you uh, busy, I'm sure. You're also a teacher in the real estate space. So what draws you, what made you choose to do that? I have always enjoyed teaching. From my earliest professional experiences in, in computer software customer service, I was teaching and training. I always enjoyed helping people to understand things. The opportunity to do it in the real estate space began for me about five years ago with another brokerage. One of the reasons I'm at the brokerage I'm at now is because they gave me, one of the reasons I went there is because I knew I would have opportunities to teach. Uh And what's happened here that wasn't happening in my previous teaching is a tremendous sense that I am making a real difference in the way people approach not just their real estate careers, but their lives. I'm teaching time management. I'm teaching business acumen. I'm teaching people an attitude. I'm teaching people, I'm sharing with people my passion for this business and my passion for life. And it's rubbing off. And so the feedback I'm getting is making me even more excited about the opportunities to be a teacher and to be a trainer and a leader. Because people are saying, Stephen, you're inspiring us. It's because of you that we did this or that. And it's like, wow. It almost makes it, I mean, of course, you want to be compensated. But even if there were no compensation, that makes it worthwhile. Absolutely. Yeah. Because now, okay, how are we going to be remembered, right? What is the legacy we're going to leave? Stephen Covey, a great book. It's a little dense, but a great book people should all read. I I think it's a great book. It's called The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. Yeah. And there's seven habits. And one of them is begin with the end in mind. 
I read that book in the late 90s and I was so struck by that one rule, that one uh, habit that he recommended. Begin with the end in mind. And what he talked about in that chapter was, imagine it's your, you're dead and there's a funeral going on and there's a eulogy being given. What do you want people to say about you? What do you think they would say about you right now? How are you going to live your life such that you will be remembered? And it's not so much an ego thing, but it's about living a worthwhile life. It's like manifesting the time we have in this space for the betterment of all of us. And that sounds, again, I don't want it to sound like self-aggrandizement, but if I touch lives, if I touch lives and I help other people to succeed, it feels to me like that will go beyond me. So when I'm gone, there'll still be, there'll still be elements of what I believed in, you know, and I don't have children, <laughs> so it has to go down this way. <laughs> no, I get it. You're, that is your legacy. You're, you're impacting people and whether they change their habits and their influence on the world because of something they learned from you or just simply that their business is better or just simply that they remember you. Like I remember this guy who told me this It always stuck with me. You know, that's powerful. That's uh, that's kind of the circular nature of the universe, right? In incredibly, incredibly so. Yeah. So what final things might you want to share with the audience that I haven't asked you or you haven't yet shared? I'm thinking of things I already said that I really wanted to get across. I feel like we've covered a lot of territory. Yes. I strive to make decisions with self-awareness. And I think that we have more power to make decisions from a position of self-awareness than we think we do. Mm -hmm. I think this world would be a happier place if more of us had a cognition of their ability to control how they reacted. Well, that's, that's super powerful, Stephen. And it reminds me, I don't know, I'm curious how this resonates with you. I can't remember where I heard it, so I can't give credit where credit might be due. But I remember someone saying to me, we are not our emotions. Like we can have feelings about something, you know, we can be angry or sad or any other range of emotion. But that isn't who we are. It's just something that we are feeling. And it is separate from our essence. And it is separate in many ways, or and maybe should be separate from our choices and our decision making, because sometimes our feelings can cloud our decisions. So how do, how, do you, how do you parallel that with what you just shared? I completely agree. I would also say that we all can be Mandela. Mm -hmm. We all have the capacity to take bad circumstances and unpleasantness in our life and choose how to react to them and choose how to be with them. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be so extraordinary. Mandela story shouldn't be so extraordinary or your parents' story or any of the people that we look to who, you know, overcame great adversity to live worthwhile lives. Because I think the reason why if I may philosophize for a moment, I think the reason why it is so extraordinary is too many of us are unaware of the choices we can make in the moment, even in the midst of great suffering. I, uh, I couldn't agree more, as you've, you've said a few times yourself. And I am certain, after getting to know you even better after this, this interview, that, uh, that your legacy is intact. You know, you're, you're, <laughs> you're, a, you're, a, you're a great human being. You have great energy. You're making a difference. 
and I think you'll have made a difference uh, once people hear this broadcast as well. So I appreciate you being here today, and hopefully uh, you'll like the end result of this, this podcast, which I'm sure our listeners will as well. Thank you all for listening. Episode three has come to a conclusion, and our next episode, episode four, we will be interviewing Diego Corzo. Diego is a dreamer, and I don't mean a dreamer like he's got big ideas, although he does. He's a dreamer like in the immigration sense of a dreamer, and he's accomplished great things here despite the challenges that someone who is caught in between our immigration system here in the United States is entangled in. He has accomplished some amazing things that I think some American citizens wish they could accomplish and call their own contributions to society. So look forward to that. Thank you so much for being here. I'm Rob Eigner. This is Clear Choices. Take care. Thank you so much for joining us. If you've been inspired and motivated by what you heard today, please subscribe to the show so you don't miss an episode. Post it on social media, invite friends, and let me know if you have any potential guests. While you're there, leave us a review. We'd love to connect with you as well, so check out our Facebook page by searching Clear Choices. I'm available for speaking engagements, and you can find more information by visiting our website at clearchoices.live. And all this can be found in our show notes. Join us next week for more inspiring stories that can help us all make clear choices. Thanks for listening.